The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Espionage, lethal politics, and a war behind a war. Could the British have orchestrated more than we ever knew in Northern Ireland? Well, that's the explosive question at the heart of a controversial new book that promises to peel back layers of a covert history. Steak Knife's Dirty War is the latest book from former provisional IRA prisoner and award-winning author Richard O'Raw, and he joins me now in the studio. Richard, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Pat, and thanks for having me. Now, we've been talking about Scapatici for... Uh, some time now, and he is uh, is now dead. He's uh, he in fact no, he's not de- so sure about that. You you think not because his death was announced after he'd been uh, he had died and was cremated or whatever, or so they said. Well, he's supposed to have died in, in April, but nobody has seen any uh, evidence that he's actually buried anywhere, or nobody knows the cause of death. Or nobody knows. It's just one of those because he was being—he was in witness protection. He was in—he was in witness protection, and he just disappeared. And an announcement was made that he's dead, and that's as much as we know. I mean, as far as uh, Kevin Winters, a uh, human rights lawyer in Belfast, is actively um, progressing uh, a ca- uh, a case to see whether or not he is dead. Yeah. For, uh, because on obviously, of the relatives. on behalf of the relatives who were victims of uh, Scapatici and his so-called nutting squad, um, they would like to see him um, brought to justice in some way. Well, they would like to know if he's dead or not. Well, that's <laughs> for the first start. Thing. Let's go back to when we know he was living. I mean, the Scapatici family, why did they come to Belfast? Well, the, the family came to Belfast in around the 1880s. And Belfast at that time, you may well, you may know, was a, a major industrial um, city. You had Harlan and Wolf. You had heavy uh, industry. You had, Belfast was low, known, for example, as Linenopolis because of its numerous linen mills. So it was, it was the, 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 the most... Industrious city in Ireland yeah, and very prosperous and as part of and extremely prosperous. Yeah. Now uh, there was work for women in the linen mills. Um, there was work for men in Harland and Wolf, but not if you were a Catholic Italian. Well, um, I think it was Harland made a, a very very prominent um, sort of quotation where he says that um, out of his workforce of three thousand, there's something like three hundred Catholics. Catholics yeah. were not welcome. In, in, in Harlan and Wolf, and over the years, we, we, we've seen examples of, of Catholics being attacked uh, yeah. on a regular basis in, in, in this shipyard. Now, uh, his father was uh, a seller of ice cream, gelato. Gelato. Uh, but uh, Freddie himself then was one of, what was it, six children? Six children, yeah. yeah. And had some talent, it would appear, as a footballer. Well, I mean, I spoke to a guy, a, a fella called Sean Flynn, who was a great friend of his, and Sean says he was the most ferocious tackler he ever, he ever, he ever Sean was a footballer, he ever played against in his life, and he says he was extremely talented. And he, he actually, we know that he went to Nottingham Forest for a trial in and around 1963, and when he came back, he, he was told that he was carrying too much weight, he'd have to lose the weight. And there were other clubs Nibbling at him, considering bringing him over, but it, it, it doesn't seem to have materialised. Yeah, he didn't lose the beef. He didn't lose the beef. And so he remained in Belfast. Now, he, he uh, was a worker. I mean, he wasn't someone who was shy of work. Um, he liked work. He liked work, yeah. Yeah. 
And I mean, the dirty work he did later on, we'll talk about in a while. Uh, But when um, all the uh, trouble happened in Belfast and Catholics were being burnt out of their homes, it was uh, quite a logical thing for many young men, teenagers, to join the IRA. Well, it was part because, I mean... If you were a teenager and where I lived in Peel Street, just off the Falls Road, and 150 yards from where I live, whole whole Catholic streets were being burned to the ground by loyalists and 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 B specials who were the, the reserve police force. So it wouldn't have been unnatural to say that I'm going to join the defence force because initially that's what the provisionals were. They weren't. They were. You know, they were a defence force. So, um, and to the extent, so was the officials, official area, but um, it wouldn't have been unnatural at all. And plus, there was no, there was no real um, constitutional political outlet because Catholics had never been in power from the formation of the Northern State, and they, they truly were, in, in every sense, part of an apartheid state, and, and they were, they, they were second class citizens. So, it wouldn't have been unnatural for somebody to gravitate towards. Uh, a revolutionary uh, protective type group. Yeah. Now, now you yourself were one of those uh, yeah. people, uh, and it, it kind of gave you the bona fides to talk to some of the people that you've talked to yes. in researching this book. Why did you become disillusioned by the provisional IRA? Well, that's a long story. Basically, I had come to the conclusion in the mid eighties that the armed struggle wasn't going to work. Now, I wasn't on my own in that thing, and I didn't actually, I didn't actually go out and squeal it from the rooftops, but uh, the, the war had already been going on from 1970 to 15 years, and there was absolutely no sign that the Brits were going to withdraw. In fact, the actual activities of the IRA was diminishing every year, so I didn't see a, a positive outcome. And I didn't actually become disillusioned. My wife, Bernadette, turned around to me and says, you have, I was only after doing six years in the hate blocks and uh, three and a half on the blanket protest in Long Cash. And um, my wife I came out. I did a bit of work for Sinn Féin uh, in, in the press office and stuff. And then my wife said to me, look, I'm not taking any more of this. You have a choice. You can have me and your daughter or you can have the Republican movement, but you're not going to have the two. So I chose my family. You chose your family. Um, as I say, your bona fides, because of your past, uh, allowed you to talk to people uh, who might not otherwise have, have, have talked to you. Um, uh, Freddie Scappatici himself was interned yes. and released. Yep. Then he was arrested again. Yep. And uh, on his release the first time, he went straight back to the IRA. He, he ended up... Um, the top man in Belfast. He ended up Brigade OC um, before he was re-interned. He got out in, in March uh, 1973. He was interned. He was lifted on the 9th of August. He got out in March 1973 and he was re-interned in the round August, September 1973. But in between, he had been the most important guy in Belfast. He was Brigade OC. So when he was released the second time, uh, he didn't go straight back to IRA activities, as far as we know. Uh, he was involved on building sites, and there was a thing called the 715 voucher. I don't know what you, do you call it, the 715 voucher? 715, that's 715. Right. 715. Now, this was a scam. This was a tax scam. Um, 
I mean, it's, it's pretty bizarre. But what the British, what the British tax mod did, if you had been working um, and had a proven record of of working um for for any length of time, and you you declared yourself self-employed, well, they give you a booklet, yeah, by which you were supposed to, um, not pay your tax every week, but pay it at the end of the year. Okay. And literally, the idea was that every week you put you take a, a a leaf out of the booklet and put it away, and then at the end of the year it's all totted up, and then you pay the tax man. Okay. The problem with that was that guys with money would have came along to some guy who had maybe on, on hard times says, "I'll buy your booklet. I'll give you four thousand quid for it," and the guy jumps at it, he gives him the booklet, and the and the the boy who was in receipt of the booklet can put the booklet on building sites and, and get. Get tens of thousands, and so that was a scheme. And then at the end of the year, the guy who originally owned it declared himself bankrupt and an alcoholic or whatever. So the revenue lose out. This was the the, the, the revenue yeah. lose out. But I mean, the revenue could have caught up on the, with these guys if uh, if they chose to. But anyway, Freddie Scappatici becomes a a broker, if you like, buying and selling these booklets of vouchers. Yes, he does. He's 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 he, uh, it was a very wealthy. I mean, it was. It was uh, what the Billy Six Tacker was thinking of, they must have been insane. <laughs> Truthfully, they must have been insane to think that anybody, you know, the people's just going to pay, not pay their tax and at the end of the year, all being well, the tax will be sitting there in the bank accumulated. Totally naive. Very naive. And it went on for years. And the official IRA were the guys who originally came up with the, the, the plan to do it. So how much money do you think Freddie Scappatici was making every week from these vouchers? Oh, it could have been six, seven thousand pounds. You wouldn't know. So he was very wealthy. Well he, got. He, he was, so, Freddie Scappatici, in, in an era when people, when, when cars were few and far between, Freddie Scappatici changed his car every week. This is after he got out of prison. Went on holidays three or four times a year. Went skiing. Nobody went skiing. In the 1970s, uh, you know, nobody, absolute, absolutely nobody yet. He's away skiing, but he's he's enjoying life. He's going to Florida. He's having a good time. And um, why wouldn't I? <laughs> now, this is important. People might think we're just uh, rambling on about yeah, yeah. the 715. Because if you were caught on the 715, and some people were, yeah. they could face up to maybe eight years in jail. So this was... If he was nabbed and if the intelligence services knew about this activity, it could be a way of turning Freddy oh, Scappatici. There's no, there's, no, there's no doubt about it. If he was arrested for it, I, I know that for sure. I spoke to one of his employees, uh, a fellow bricklayer, who told me that, yes, he was most definitely arrested um, for it. Um, and it, is, it, is, it could well be that he was told, you're going back to prison. And he may well have got a sickener from internment. Internment was very, internment you had prisoner war status, but it was a very hard time simply because you had no release date. It could have held you forever. So, it, But if you uh, went to jail for the, the scam, the, the voucher scam, you wouldn't even have the special status no. in prison. You wouldn't have your you, mates you, uh, from the been, IRA with no. you. You would have been an ordinary prisoner. But you'd have been an ordinary prisoner. porridge might have been hard to take. You'd have been an ordinary criminal. My friend, he was a very, a very proud guy. Um, you know, he was a very, to all intents and purposes, he was a classic 
Ultima Rayman. Now, there were other uh, speculations looking back. He might have been turned on that occasion. There was also uh, an interest in pornography and uh, an interest in preteen girls that some people speculate on that that might have been the blackmailing tactic to get him to turn. Freddie Scabatici, in my view, wouldn't have been easy to turn. The British, the British Army would tell you that he, he met this guy called, I'll not mention the guy's name, the, the guy that turned him. He was a British Army officer. He met him and he turned him. I, I don't accept that. There's a whole lot of things that don't accept. Don't accept that he was beaten up and because he got beaten up by a couple of IRA men, he went in. The, and he went in so and revenge being a motive, you no, don't accept that? I don't. I don't. Freddie Scabatici was too, too tough for that. Whatever turned him up was in his material interest for it not to come out, whatever it is, right? So whether it so was pornography, preteen girls or, or... Or the 715. The 715. Something that would have put him in prison, but not just in prison, would have absolutely destroyed his reputation. Now, uh, this brings us to the, the formation of the ISU, the Internal Security, Security Unit. Yeah. Um, and the, if you like... The, the active part of that, the so-called nutting squad. I mean, the ISU, yes, you describe, or someone has described them in your book as being like a, loads of, a load of useless articles entirely who were very good at the interrogation and a bit of torture. But when it came to shooting people, they didn't get their hands dirty. Well, one of the guys I, uh, that I, I spoke to um, said, said exactly what you said. I remember... I remember Scapatici, we knew how the her operations worked okay, but I never ever seen a mountain alley. You know, so these the 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 internal security did not operate. They did not operate in in the traditional IRA sense. They weren't out fighting the British Army. They weren't in gun battles. I mean the guy you're talking about says actually he came off with a great a great quote. He says, They were good when some poor creator was on his knees. And a country lane. And all they had to do was to put two bullets in the back of his head. No risk. No nothing. He says, that's when they, that was the, the, yeah. the, 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 the height of their active service. And they did that. I mean, they anyone they had a whiff was a tout or an informer. That's the fate that awaited them. Even if they confessed and were promised they'd be let free or whatever, uh, their inevitable fate was a bullet in the head. It was, well, Scapatisi said himself, they never walked, they never got home. He, he was the IRA's most uh, prolific and the most, uh, the best interrogator. He was the best interrogator in, in internal security in the Nutton Squad. And he used to, his first thing he'd done when he when they picked someone up, they put the clock on. They says, you've an hour to confess. After the hour, it's too late. You'll be taken down to South Armagh. You'll be hung upside down in a barn and you'll be skinned alive. And you will confess no matter what. So they counted down and Scapatici would have said, you've five minutes to go, you've four minutes to go, you've three minutes, kiddo. If you don't see after three minutes, even if you confess, it's too late. So there was the, the, the psychological torture. And then they absolutely tortured people, right? They don't like it, but they did torture people. People were tortured. There's a case in my book uh, of, a, of, a, of a lad called Paddy McDade who, was, in it, who yeah. was a Republican, was absolutely crucified. Uh, they did torture people and they tortured them into confessing. The whole thing was to get them to confess, get them to confess. Just exactly what Special Branch done on IRA men, on, on the hooded men, etc. And on, on, on the IRA men. It was an, an enormous abuse of human rights. 
Now, uh, he was in a position because he had been turned uh, to let his uh, paymasters know exactly what was going on in the IRA. And the controversial thing about Scapatici's activities was that uh, he told them they didn't necessarily intervene and save lives, be they Republicans or even security forces lives. They did not intervene. Well, absolutely. I mean, I have it from three very reputable sources, a lawyer, uh, a, a media, a leading media uh, person and a leading politician. These are guys who spoke to members of John Boucher's Canova team, which is investigating Scapatici. And they were told in no uncertain terms, it was almost like we were going to drop this information. They were told that Scapatici told his handlers about every killing in which he was involved. And he was involved at least in 35 so, and he told them, just didn't tell them, he told them beforehand. They had pre-warning that 35 people were going to be murdered. And there's this group called the Tosking and Coordinating Group. They coordinate all, they coordinated all, there's an intelligence group. They coordinated all intelligence for the British government and the, uh, British, the British, and the action that sometimes he says, send the SAS and wait those guys out. But they sat back, having got this information that John John Henry Ducker, I use that as the name, is going to be shot dead tonight in Dunmore Street at 8 o'clock. What do we do? The hell with him. Let him go. Yeah. And they let the guy get shot dead. Again and again. And again, and again. their logic would be... If we intervene too many times, and I don't know how many times they actually did intervene to save lives. Twice, if we inter- twice that I know of. Twice, that's all. That's it. Because uh, then the IRA may become aware that they have a tout among them if too many operations are spoiled at the last moment. Well, it was like the, it was like the Enigma machine, you know, the imitation game. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 that film, it was the same thing. They had broken the, they had broken the IRA. They, they were totally on top wasn't just Capatici. I, I believe there was a, an, uh, at least one high-ranking IRA officer far higher than Scapatici in play. But even at that, whether there was or whether there wasn't, they knew everything that the IRA was doing. And there, and for Lehmans to out Scapatici would have maybe endangered a, a bigger yeah. um, intelligence a gathering process. I mean, the, the, the finger is pointed uh, at Martin McGuinness as being that person perhaps who had been turned, that seems implausible. Well, uh, implausible is a word that I would be, I I would... um, I mean, all of this is implausible in theory. You know, Scapatici's activities uh, are so outrageous, they're implausible. The fact that he was turned being so close to the IRA, that's implausible, but it happened. Well, I say in the book quite categorically that I am not totally convinced I don't know. What I actually say is that I don't think there's sufficient evidence to point the finger at McGuinness and say definitively that he was a British agent. That said, there is a gathering portfolio of evidence that is very dominant for him. The the, the murder of of um, uh, Franco Haggerty, in which he was involved. I'm not saying he was involved in, in the killing of him, right? But he, he sponsored uh, Frank Har- Frank Haggerty was a Derry guy who had been dismissed from the IRA because there was a suspicion he was an informer. And he came back 
at the behest of his handlers in the frew. And he was he was warmly greeted by Martin McGuinness, and within no time at all, he was elevated to the lofty heights of Northern Command. He was a, he was a, he was an assistant to the Quartermaster Northern Command. Quartermaster Northern Command controls every gun in the North. He can literally say, "Bring all your guns to Gary, to Derry, and put them in such and such a dump." So whoever controls that position controls the war. And did they have the British have many successes in uh, inter- intervening in these deliveries? Well, they, you may well recall that there was a huge dump. IRA dump found on a beach in Donegal. It was 123 AK-47s. Uh, and there was also arms, of a huge dump found in Mayo. And they all came from this guy, Haggerty. He told the British, he told the British, he told the Irish government. And the Irish government moved in and lifted these huge dumps. And then Haggerty had to go on the run. It's just, now this guy's sponsored by Martin McGuinness. Now I'm not saying that that, is an, uh, that indicts him as an informer. I'm not so sure that it does. It indicts him as being very naive. Or could it be sh- that already he was pushing the peace process and, well, you, see, you know, there's a twin parallel. He's still in his position um, within the IRA, within Sinn Féin, but also he's pushing the peace process, which he can't do as publicly as he wants to do. And if he can frustrate some of the military activities of the hardliners, knowing that they will maybe come around. Well, that's an extremely uh, perceptive point because, uh, for example, there was a, a book released last year um, by John Crawley. I don't know why you just had him down here, but called The Yank. Yeah. And John talks about um, McGinnis. Crawley was an ex-Marine. He actually, special forces guy. I asked him, by the way, had he ever shot anyone? And he refused to answer. Well, I'm, I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> He's hardly going to say yes. But the point is, Crawley, Crawley was very frustrated with McGinnis. McGinnis wouldn't, Crawley came across with a whole series of military suggestions because he was a military man. He, he, was, he was actually teaching special forces. And McGinnis snapped them down. And sent them over to America to deal with with Whitey Bulger and buy and buy all sorts of shotguns and, and rubbish, but um, so he was thwarting he was thwarting Crawley, and um, and not just him. There's uh, there are instances where, even in my book, where volunteers were going going out in operations, and word came from again was stopping. So he was he was certainly stopping operations. Mm-hmm. Again, we can only guess at whatever motivation there might be, whether, if you like, the peace process was more advanced in his head than in those uh, around him. Um, Finally, uh, we don't want to tell everyone the whole story in your book because it's a fascinating book and it's laden with detail and with uh, testimony. But Scapatici um, was found out. And even then, uh, the fate for a tout at the hands of the IRA might have been what he had dished out himself. Yeah. And that didn't happen to him. No, it, it didn't. I mean, and, and that's one of the conundrums. Scapatici, although I, I read, I, it's, it's, it's a, it's, my book is principally biographical, but there are things about Scapatici no one will ever know. And that's and one of the reasons why, the reason why he, he wasn't dealt with more harshly by the IRA is that an Anthony McIntyre um, 
a Republican, came up with the idea that he was too big to fail. Too big to fail. Had he failed, I mean, this is the OC of internal security. He's He is debriefing everyone coming out of Castle Ray. He's known across the whole of the North and the South. Anybody going into a, a, a police station and being questioned about air activity, nine times out of ten, Scabatichi would have been waiting on him coming so, out. So if, he, if he's actually working for the other side, the, 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 in terms of morale, it would have been devastating. All right, the appalling vista. Well, the book is called Steak Knife's Dirty War, the inside story of Scapatici, the IRA's nutting squad and the British spooks who ran the war. And its author is Richard O'Rourke. Richard, thank you very much for joining us. Pat, it's a pleasure. On the programme. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Thank you again. Thank you.